Dan Riskin, our science specialist, joins us. And Dan, let's talk, well, we'll start with uh, drugs and alcohol. And the latest research uh, undermines the notion that they actually might fuel your creativity. Yeah, let's start our day with drugs and alcohol, shall we? Like, uh, you know, like great artists do. I mean, there's this idea that there are these artists who, you know, use drugs as a way of just opening up their minds and do great things. But uh, a new research paper sort of calls it into question. It's basically a, 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 it's not really a paper about drugs and alcohol. It's a paper about creativity. It's about creativity enhancement methods. So different ways that people try to enhance their creativity. And they found in this meta-analysis where they looked at all the studies that have been done that they could find where people try to improve their creativity, they found that, it, you know, you could take training courses on how to be more creative. You can meditate, you can have exposure to culture, you can travel. All these things will improve your creativity but when they looked at the evidence that taking mind manipulating drugs would make you creative they could not find a significant impact they couldn't find studies that show that you end up making more creative work and even though we all know about you know hunter s thompson and these other people that used drugs to be more creative there's also all the people that took drugs but then weren't more creative as a as a or became less creative as a result of doing it right and so we're we're having this this post-selection bias where we only hand pick the ones where we see the correlation we're expecting and we don't actually look at the whole population and you need to think about that whole population if you're thinking okay i'm going to write a book am i going to be whacked out on lsd for the next three months while i'm writing it or should i just maybe meditate in the morning before i do it and this research shows that meditating is going to give you uh, better results and that drugs are more as often as not are going to have no effect at all at all. Okay. I'm very curious about cockroaches and what kind of sex lives they have. Aren't we all, this is a, this is a great story. And you know what? I've been trying to sell this to my kids and they're like, dad, stop talking about cockroach sex. I'm like, but listen, kids, this is really important. So this is uh, really cool stuff because cockroaches have already a pretty complex life when it comes to sex, where a male, when he wants to mate with a female, presents her with a gift. He secretes this goo that is like the equivalent of a chocolate bar, so to speak. That makes it sound grosser than it uh -huh. is, although it is pretty gross to start with. It's a, it's a sugary treat that comes out of his back and she eats it. And then she's like, oh, that was nice. And then they have sex. And this is just part of how it works for cockroaches. But here's the crazy thing. Since the 1980s, People who want to kill cockroaches, exterminators, have been using sugary treats to ca to attract them. And so female cockroaches have evolved, not all of them, but some of them have mutated so that they don't like glucose anymore. They don't like those sugary treats. And researchers found that those females who don't like the sugary treats were less likely to take a treat given by a male and thus less likely to mate. And what this new paper shows is that males now have mutated in response and made a different sugary treat that has a different different kind of sugar that's going to taste good even to those females who don't like the glucose anymore. So now they produce a different a different sugar. So we're seeing the evolution happen in response to these exterminators who have messed up cockroaches perfectly good sex lives by making females not like sugar. Now the males have had to come up with a different gift idea in order to get to have sex. Ain't evolution interesting. Okay. Isn't it? Let's move on to uh, Stonehenge. Everybody's got a theory and the latest one it's a, it's a big calendar. Yeah, well, the latest. So last year, there was a big paper that came out in uh, in the, the scientific literature looking at the positions of these stones that are at the at the 
outside edge called Sarsons and saying that this is actually showing that Stonehenge was not only a calendar, but it kept track of the fact that the year is not 365 days, but 365.25 days and leap years and all that stuff. And there's a new paper that just came out saying that that's all bunk and that you know sometimes when you're looking for a calendar, all you see is calendars and saying that basically people who made those analyses uh, were, were seeing a pattern where there isn't one. So there's a lot of uh, arguing going on right now in the Stonehenge world. There's no question that it lines up with the sun and the moon, but whether it was a perfect calendar that did all these other things is come into question. So it's, it, there's a big question mark hovering over those big rocks out in England right now. Maybe it's just pretty. Yeah, I mean, it can be both. But yes, absolutely. Uh, Elon Musk, this is in the news this morning, and I'm very curious about your thoughts. And a whole bunch of people are calling for a pause in the race toward even more sophisticated artificial intelligence. I figure the horse is already out of the barn, or I guess the virtual horse is out of the virtual barn. Um, But maybe a pause is a good idea. Yeah, I don't know that a pause is possible. I mean, Elon Musk is a powerful man, but I don't think he can stop tech from going in that direction. I think the horse is out of the barn. You've got a whole bunch of independent companies with a ton of money uh, and a ton of incentive to uh, to to go farther down this road. And I think that we're we're all the the horse is out of the barn. It's going. So it doesn't matter what Elon says. I think that even if we all agreed, we should stop it. I, I don't. I think all it takes is for one group to keep going. I mean, this is this technology of artificial intelligence and chat GPT is the first time that Google's ever been wobbled off of their throne. I mean, it used to be that if you have any question at all, you go to Google and Google gives you the answer. And now there really is a split. There are certain kinds of questions where Google is going to give you the answer, but there's a whole host of other things where chat GPT can give you a really great answer. Uh, although you have to take into account that it's often wrong. It's very confident. It always thinks it's right, but it's often totally incorrect. Um, but I've been using it I mean, I can't stop myself. I use it every day for I, I, I just it's so fun for me right now to say hey, that's a weird thing. I've, I wonder if chat GPT would do that better than Google does. So I've been using it to help me. I've been doing a little bit of computer programming, which I gather, you know, a lot of people don't do. But for computer programming and troubleshooting, if I have some code that's not working, I can just paste it into chat GPT and say, why isn't my code working? And it'll give me suggestions to fix it, which are always right. Um, I can say, uh, hey, I, I wrote a, a title for this paper, but I don't think it's a very good title. Can you give me some other versions of it? And it, it can brainstorm different ways of saying the same thing, which is really helpful. Um, I was thinking about a book idea and I said, hey, if I wrote a book about this topic, what are 12 chapters that I would organize it into? And it came up with 12 great chapter ideas. Um, it, it, there's even there's a guy at the dog park and he was telling me, oh, yeah, we had a big meeting at the bank and I took all our notes from the meeting and I gave it to ChatGPT and it gave me a nice tight summary with action items all laid out. And so all these jobs that that you'd need a person to use their brain for, um, those are now starting to, to fade away. And so I'm, I, I just think it's really exciting. I understand that there's a lot of scary stuff about it. And, you know, people that write for a living and are creative for a living are nervous that we might actually become replaced by robots. I get that. And I'm not trying to dismiss it. But it's there are a lot of exciting things, too. And if we can harness it to, to make our lives easier, then we should. Okay, and we've only got 30 seconds here, and I appreciate you've talked about this elsewhere, but the woolly mammoth meatball that nobody can eat? 
Yeah, it's mammoth DNA made into a meatball okay. as a way of showing that lab-grown meat is a possibility. And they use the mammoth because mammoths went extinct. And what they're saying is if you don't switch your from eating actual animals, we're all going to go extinct because it's hurting the environment. So let's, let's switch to lab-grown meat. And here's a meatball that's made with a mammoth DNA, but no mammoth was harmed in the making of this meatball. Wow. Dan, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Dan Riskin, our science expert. And it's funny because I'm vaguely nauseated at the idea of a giant meatball made out of woolly mammoth DNA that's been grown in a lab. But if that's the future of meat and we don't have to send the little piggy to slaughter anymore, then bring it on.